Thank you for listening to the First Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. Here you will be able to listen to all of our Sunday morning sermons. Be sure to hit the subscribe or follow button so you don't miss a sermon. Enjoy today's message. We all strive for something in our lives. We all strive for stories. We all want a story, whether it's to be told to us or whether we want a story about our lives or whether we just want there to be a story around the most random events that happen in our lives. You see, we want there to be a reason for there to be a solution to the things that happen in our lives, even if it's the most random thing in the world, even if it's stubbing your toe while you're walking to the kitchen. Or even if it's a random, a random score of a game that we're watching on Sunday afternoon. The most random things in our lives, we want a solution to them because it helps the purpose of our lives. Some things that we say that sometimes show this is we might say, well, everything happens for a reason. I'm pretty sure everybody in this room has either been told that, has said that, or has heard that at some point in their lives. Maybe, maybe you have heard somebody say, I don't believe in coincidences. Everything, there, everything has to happen. There's not just a coincidence. It doesn't just go. It doesn't just happen. Everything happens, and it has a reason to it. I don't believe in coincidences. Or, this is a good one, for when you break up with somebody, you just haven't met the right person yet. If you're counseling somebody who's going through a tough breakup or something like that, at some point in time, you may have heard somebody say, you just haven't met the right person yet. And the last one is, I guess it just wasn't meant to be. Sometimes we hear people say these things, or we ourselves say these things, and it oftentimes comes from this desire that there is a reason, there is a solution to all the things happening in our lives. Uh, Some might say a meta-narrative for our entire lives. Something is going on around us. It's not just my life. And for many of us, If we thought to ourselves, well, there is no purpose in anything, everything is nothing, and I have no reason to live, life would be pretty depressing. But many of us expect a reason for the things that happen. Back in a time called the 400 years of silence, this could not ever be more true. If you're not theological and you don't know a bunch of theological terms, that's okay. The 400 years of silence is a time where it was between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some might call it the intertestamental period. I know, that's a big word. Try saying it three times fast. It just doesn't work, okay? But the intertestamental period was the 400 years between the book of Malachi until John the Baptist came, when when the angel spoke to Elizabeth that John the Baptist, that she would bear a son. And in those 400 years, in that time, the world was crazy. God was not speaking to anybody. God was not performing miraculous signs to anyone. Nothing was happening the way it had been. There were no prophets or anything like that. Nobody was speaking for God. God was speaking to no one. And in turn, God was silent throughout it all. Nobody had heard from God. Nobody knew what God was doing. It's almost like God went to bed for 400 years and nobody could wake him up. And during this period, there was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of division. And without the leadership of God, without God telling people what was going on and what was happening, God was left up into interpretation. 
You see, people began to interpret who God was and, and what he'd done. It almost had seemed like God had forgotten his people and his promises. It seemed as though God was forgetting who everyone was and what he had promised to do for them. And people began to freak out. And that's when people eventually said, well, there must be a reason for this. God must be doing this for a reason. God must be challenging us. Maybe he's testing us. Some people, like I said, maybe they, they thought, well, maybe he's forgotten about us. People wanted to know why. What, what is happening? Why is this going on? And even though God had previously told them that this would happen, they still did not know what to expect. In fact, the prophet Amos prophesied this. In Amos chapter 8, verse 11, at the very end of it, it says, I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of water or bread, bread or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. If you know anything about their eating habits and their farming and everything back then, a famine was quite possibly the worst thing that could happen to them. A famine did not mean just that we wouldn't have food or water for a little while. It, mean, it meant death for a lot of people. It meant sickness for a lot of people. And only those who were the most wealthy would be able to survive it very well. The people who were poor, the people who struggled, were the people who this affected the most. And so when God was silent, and when God had a famine of his word to his people, he was then left up to interpretation. You see, there are groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes that these groups formed after God was silent because what they thought, well, if God's not going to tell us what to do, somebody's got to tell us what to do. So we'll we'll just take it upon ourselves to tell the people what we think God wants us to do. So if you ever are reading the the gospel or anything like that, and you see these Pharisee guys, and Jesus is yelling at them, and he's like, hey, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Why are you the way that you are? What are you doing? It's most likely because he's frustrated with them because they basically took ownership of saying, well, if God's not going to talk, we'll talk for him. And if you know anything about God, he doesn't like it when people talk for him. He likes it when you tell other people what he said himself. And so all this time, Jesus was expected. He was the one that people were expecting to come back and be the solution, to be, to, be, to be the reason why God was doing this, why this 400 years of silence was here. They were expecting him to finally come back and finally be there. And that is one of the ways that Jesus got the name Expected One. And so all throughout this Christmas season, we're going to be going through a series called Above All Names. And in this series, we're going to be referencing five different names that Jesus was known as. The name we're referencing today is the expected one. And the other four names are found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're going to continue going over these throughout this entire series. But today we're going to focus on how Jesus was named as the expected one. And I do think that title is significant. I wonder if the title Expected Hope would be a little bit better. Because not only were people expecting Jesus to come, but Jesus was the hope for the entire world. That not only would God save them and and God would work through him, but that God himself would finally reveal himself back to them because their lives were in shambles, their lives were destroyed without him. 
and say they were looking for a hope. They were looking for somebody, for something, for God to do something to show that he was back with them. And it actually starts not with Jesus, but with the mother of John the Baptist. The book of Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 37, we'll start at 26, it says this, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Elizabeth, that is the mother of John the Baptist, she is the cousin of Mary. Okay? In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Now, we don't know very much about these two people, Mary and Joseph. We don't know very much about them. In fact, Scripture has very little to say about them before we ever get to this point. So what we can assume is that Mary and Joseph were just two nameless teenagers who were, who were, who were destined to be married, who were put together by their families to be married, and that Mary would just grow up a nameless teenager who has kids, who would raise her kids, who would then lead her kids off, who would take care of her husband, and she would eventually die off. But in this moment, Mary became much more than just a nameless teenager because God had more in store store for her. Verse 28, Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. He said, The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Is this good news? Is this bad news? What's going on? Do I know what's going to happen here? Most often, if an angel visited you, something crazy was going to happen, so she didn't think this was just a normal thing. It, it, it says this in, the, in verse 30, Don't be afraid, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. Not that she's God's favorite, but you have found favor with God. And so at this point in time, she knows that she is going to learn what God has for her. And she most likely is not just going to learn what God has for her, but she knows that God has not shown up in the past 400 years except to her cousin Elizabeth. And so she knows she is going to be an integral part of this God showing back up, God speaking again. Verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son, he, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and he will be called Son of the Most High. I apologize. The Lord God will give you the throne of the ancestor David, and he, will re- and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And this was, this was unheard of back then. For a kingdom to never end was unheard of. Kingdoms had conquered and then ended time after time again. There had not been an independent kingdom for 500 years at this time. Kingdoms had come and they would end. And for an angel to come and say, hey, this guy's going to come and his kingdom will never end, was preposterous preposterous. That was unheard of for that to happen. But in this time, I can guarantee you Mary wasn't thinking about this kingdom idea. She was thinking about what in the world I'm going to have who? I'm going to do what? And that's exactly what she says. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. I took science class. I know how this works. No, they didn't have science class back then. Uh, (laughs) I'm a virgin, the angel replied. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the baby will be born, and will be holy, and be called the Son of God. And that is still what we call him today. Verse 36. 
What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God has never failed. People were expecting an answer, but what they were expecting is what they did not get. You see, what they were expecting was they were expecting a king. They were expecting royalty. They were expecting a war, a, 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 somebody who would lead a war, lead a charge against other people. But that's not what they got. Instead, God gave everyone hope from a nameless family in a barn. Instead of giving them the royalty that they expected, instead of giving them someone with a sword and a shield who would destroy all of their enemies, God gave them somebody who would love all of their enemies and who would say, instead of getting rid of them, we're going to love them. Instead of getting rid of them out of our way, we're going to make them more like us. And that's just not what people knew. People were expecting something different. And I think we can all agree when God does something other than what we expect, oftentimes that can lead to doubt. We think to ourselves, well, God, I prayed for this to happen. I prayed for you to do this, but you did something completely different. I wanted you to do this in my marriage. I wanted you to do this with my family, but instead you did something different. And oftentimes that produces doubt in our lives. And I've heard some people say, and maybe you have too, that that doubt is a sign of a bad Christian. If you have doubt, then you're a bad Christian, you're a bad person. I could not tell you that's, that's more further from the truth. You see, instead of doubt being the opposite of faith, doubt is the opportunity of faith. Instead of seeing your doubt as, oh, I have no faith, I'm a terrible Christian, I'm a terrible person, see your doubt as an opportunity to grow your faith. See your doubt as an opportunity to be better than what you were, to have, be closer to God, to have more faith in him. And you might say to yourself, well, is that how God sees it? That's fine if, if you see it that way, or it's fine if I see it that way, but, you know, if I have doubt, what if God just looks down upon me and doesn't like me and tells me to get over it? Well, I want to share with you a way that Jesus deals with our doubt. And this isn't a metaphor. This is straight from Scripture. This isn't a metaphor or anything, because I don't think a metaphor would even do it justice. And this is honestly four verses in the Bible we do not read often enough. And there are four verses we probably do not give enough weight to. Because in this moment, in these four verses, we're going to see exactly how Jesus dealt with doubt. We're going to see exactly how Jesus can deal with your doubt. Luke chapter 7, verse 18 says this, The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything that Jesus was doing. Okay, Not only did they tell Jesus the things he was doing, but they were probably also telling Jesus about the prophecy that he was fulfilling, about everything that he had done and saying, look how, look how this lines up with the prophecy. A lot of people do the prophecy back then, and they were constantly looking for the solution. So when Jesus got older and he starts doing these many things and fulfilling the prophecy, Jesus' own second cousin, John the Baptist, is hearing about what Jesus has done. Going on from there, it says, So John called for two of his disciples, verse 19. He sent them to the Lord and asked him, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone 
else. John wanted to send his disciples to ask Jesus that. He didn't want to just confirm what he thought. He didn't want to just, you know, hey, just check and make sure. You know, we got to make sure on this. No, he doubted Jesus. He doubted that that was actually their Savior. He doubted that, hey, this, this really is the one who's to come. Not because he didn't believe the prophecy, but because this Jesus guy, this, this guy who was supposed to be the Savior, he wasn't spending his time getting an army together who would fight against all the Romans and everybody like that. No, what he was doing is he was spending his time with the tax collectors and the drunks and the prostitutes and trying to tell them about love and peace and, hey, worship God because he's your only hope. I'm convinced that if Jesus started a church today, none of us would be going to it. Because Jesus spent his time with all the people that the Christians said, eh, or the Jews, I apologize, that the Jews said, eh, I don't know about that. He spent all his time with those people and he said, those are the people. I didn't come to fight a war, a physical war. What he came to do is he came to fight for me and you with love and grace and forgiveness. And that's why John doubted Jesus. He doubted that this could actually be the one who was, who was to come to save them. He doubted that he actually was doing what God said he was going to do. He believed the prophecies would be fulfilled, but he had no idea that this would be the way it would be fulfilled. Verse 20, this is where the disciples go to Jesus. John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him exactly what they're supposed to say. John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Good disciples ask the question the exact right way. Great job. And I think what happens here next, what Jesus does next, to me, might be one of the most important verses in the Bible. What Jesus does here next to answer them might be one of the most important things that Jesus ever did in his lifetime. Because Jesus, in this verse, and you might not see it right away, but Jesus in this verse, in this time, doesn't just answer them, but he answers all of our doubts. Verse 21, at that very time, that means right then and there. That doesn't mean days later. That doesn't mean anything like that. At that very time, right then and there, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. At that very time, once he heard about John's doubt, once he heard about the disciples' doubt and said, hey, this is going on, this is what's happening, are you really? I don't know. Are you really the the Messiah? His immediate reaction was not to, come on, guys, you know this, all right? I'm here. I I fulfilled the prophecies. No, his his first reaction was not, come on, guys, you let's do this, you know. His first reaction was not to attack them and say, you guys are not smart enough to get this, are you? His first reaction was to answer with an action. Not to answer with words and not to criticize them or say, you should know this. His first reaction was to answer them with his actions and say, do you doubt? Let me show you why you should not doubt. Because I know exactly what you need to not only hear, but what you need to see. And that last line He restored sight to many who were blind. I think there's more to that than what we know. I think that the authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I think that they were very intelligent in writing what they wrote. And they were very meticulous about where they put what. Because I think that not only did he cure the diseases and the illnesses and the evil spirits, I think not only did he do that, but when he restored the sight of the blind, not only was he restoring those people's blindness 
not only was he restoring their eyesight physically, but I think in that moment when the disciples go back to John, he was restoring his spiritual blindness as well, his doubt, the blindness he had in his heart about Jesus. He was restoring that in addition to restoring these people's physical blindness. And I just don't see how that is not an amazing thing. Because in that moment, Jesus did not criticize. He did not attack. He did not condemn them. He did not do any of those things to them. He did not do any of that to John. He did not say, my second cousin, he should know better. Did Elizabeth not talk to Mary? What in the world? I don't understand. He didn't do any of that. Instead, he took that moment to show his disciples exactly who he was and to remind them this wasn't the first time he had done these things. It wasn't the first time he healed people. But to remind them, yes, I do love you, and I will answer your doubt, and I do accept your doubt. Because I, I fully believe that Jesus will answer your doubts. Jesus wants to answer your doubts. The worst thing that we can do is not give Jesus the opportunity to answer our doubts. The worst thing we can do is to look at our doubts and say, that's the opposite of faith, and I'm a terrible person. The best thing we can do is to take our doubts to God and use them as an opportunity to build our faith up. So when you take a doubt and you ignore it and you say, no, no, no I'm a good Christian. I shouldn't have that. I, I, I want to make Jesus proud. I, I shouldn't think about that. But when you go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I'm having a hard time. I asked you to help me in this situation. But you didn't do what I thought, and I'm really having a hard time with that. I lost this loved one a little while ago, and it seems like you don't care when I've asked you to help me. So I don't know where you're at. I've asked you to help my marriage when it was struggling and when we had hard times together. But we only continue to have hard times, so I don't know where you're at. I can't get along with my family. I don't know what to do with, with my kids or anything. I, I'm having a hard time because it just seems like you're not there. But when we have those doubts, when we take those to God, we see exactly how Jesus deals with those doubts. God wants you to take your doubts to him because he wants to remind you of why you don't need to have those doubts. And that's why I love the song that Jeannie sang before we came before I came up here, and, and just the way she sang it with just the guitar in her. Trust me, I am somebody who loves, you know, lights down, rock, loud music, and, and lights everywhere. I love that stuff. But every now and then, a simple song with just a guitar and the voice is sometimes what we need. I want to read that chorus of that song to you real fast. I've seen you move, come move the mountains, and I believe I'll see you do it again. You made a way when there was no way, and I believe... I'll see you do it again. That's a song from Elevation Worship. I love Elevation Worship. They have some amazing songs. It's called Do It Again by Elevation Worship. And to me, it is a reminder when I do have my doubts. I get them just like everybody else. It's a reminder to me that, that when you have those doubts, Jesus is going to do something again to show you not to have those. Jesus is going to show you because when you got baptized and when you, and when you had that moment with Jesus, that was a spiritual high and you thought to yourself, nothing can bring me down from here, but let's just be honest, sometimes life just brings you down to the core and you don't know how to get your way back up. But in those moments, Jesus can do it again to remind us that we don't need to struggle with those doubts, that when we take those doubts to him, 
provides us an opportunity to grow our faith. And if you are right now are experiencing doubt, if you're saying, John, I'm just having a real hard time right now, I'm experiencing doubt, good news, you're in really, really good company. Not only did John the Baptist struggle with doubt, but Moses struggled with doubt. Moses struggled with doubting his calling that God gave to him. He said, I don't know if I can talk in front of Pharaoh. Yes, you can. I'll send to Aaron. And then he did all the talking. You know, when Sarah doubted, when Sarah doubted God, hey, I don't think you can give me a baby. Ha, 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 ha. That's funny that you would think I would have a baby. Boom, here's a baby. When Habakkuk went to God and saying, why, 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 why? Why are you doing this? Why are you hurting these people? I am with all these people and you are constantly hurting them because you're allowing these other people to take ownership over them and hurt them. Why, 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 why? He doubted that God would do anything with that. And just like the guy who had the nickname, you think you've had a bad nickname, had the nickname based off his doubt, Doubting Thomas, who doubted that Jesus would really come back to life. And then you have Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, who doubted that Jesus really was who he said he was, and actually spent a lot of his life killing people who believed in Jesus. He eventually came to know Jesus through his doubt. And so I want you to know that some of the greatest doubters in history had some of the greatest faith, because of the, not because they had doubt, but because of the way they dealt with their doubt. I don't, I don't have it on the screen because I actually just thought about adding this maybe a few minutes before I came up here. But there's this verse a little bit later in Luke chapter 7. Because not only does Jesus answer with his actions, but after John's disciples leave, Jesus starts talking about John. He starts telling them exactly who John is. And he doesn't go on, go on and on about how John shouldn't have doubted and how that was the worst thing ever. No, in verse 28, and you can go read this for yourself. It's right there. In verse 28, this is what it says. I tell you, all who have ever lived, that means everyone, okay? That's not like just the people in the circle that they're in. All who have ever lived, everyone. None is greater than John. That's a pretty high compliment from Jesus himself. Jesus himself says, no, out of everybody who's ever lived, none is greater than John. And John just sent his disciples doubting Jesus. And sentences later, in that chapter, and sentences later, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one is greater than John. If that doesn't speak about how we deal with our doubt, then I don't know what does. Because you have to remember, Jesus was the expected hope for all of humanity at that time. And most likely in your life, he's he's the hope that you need right now as well. For something that's going on, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your family, whether it's your job, whatever it is, there's something that you need Jesus to come and bring hope for in your life right now. And I think that when we have doubt, when we have struggles, when we take those to Jesus... Jesus doesn't attack us. He doesn't condemn us. But I think that Jesus honestly looks at us and says, thank you. I'm the best person you could have brought that to. So in your life, don't try to play this character of good Christian and I never have doubts and I'm okay and and I'm going to be exactly who I think I need to be. Don't try to play that game. God sees right through that game. Instead, be honest in your prayers. That's something me and my life group have talked about lately. It's just being honest with God, being honest with each other in every situation. 
Be honest with him about your doubts. Be honest with him about those things. The other day, and I know I got kids in the room, so they're probably going to remember this, but the other day we were, uh, we were talking about prayer over in Kids Zone. I don't know why this is doing this. Uh, we were talking about prayer the other day in Kids Zone, and I asked the kids, I said, hey, should we be praying about like the good things? I asked them to raise their hand. They said, yeah. They all raised their hand. They said, yeah, we should pray about the good things. Yeah, we should do that. I said, okay, good, 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 good. Should we pray about the bad things? You know, like when we're upset or like we're mad. Like, should we, should we pray then? I had one kid raise his hand. He said, yeah. I had 12 kids at that time I was talking to. One kid raised his hand and said, yeah. And I said, what, what do you guys think? Why? Why should we or should we not? And he said, one kid raised his hand and he said, well, I was told we only pray to God when we thank him for stuff and then like ask him to get rid of our sins. I said, I said yeah, yeah, you should definitely pray to him about that. I said, but when you're mad, when you're doubting God, when you're upset, go to him then too. You bring every ounce of that anger, every ounce of those emotions to him because he's the one who can truly handle all those things. God's not afraid of your doubt or your anger or anything like that. God's not afraid for you to bring that to him. God doesn't say, oh no, Megan's upset. I don't know if I can handle this. No. We're upset and we come to him. He tells us to come closer. And he wants to answer those things we're upset with. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to walk up the stage and get in the front like usual. And the band's going to come up here and play. But if you have something you need prayer for right now, if you have a decision you want to make today, I'd ask that you come to the front. And I'll pray with you or I'll talk with you, whatever you need. And we'll do that together. I'm going to go in and pray. Dear Lord. Thank you for this day. Thank you for just everything you've made and done for us and the amazing things that you've given us each and every day. Lord, you've brought so much life into our lives and happiness and blessings. And Lord, even though we have so many things to be thankful for, we have so many things to be grateful for, we still find time to doubt. We still find time to say that we have struggles. We still find time to say things are hard. And Lord, sometimes I think you must get annoyed by that. But Lord, at the end of the day, you don't. You love each and every one of us. And I can't thank you enough for that love. And I can't thank you enough for the truth about how you deal with our doubt. Lord, thank you so much for the story of Jesus and John the Baptist, of how he dealt with John's doubt about how he didn't criticize him, how he didn't condemn him, about how he didn't attack him, but he just answered him. And so I want to pray for everybody in this room that if anybody here is experiencing doubt today, if anybody here is experiencing struggle today that's leading them away from you, that their first reaction would be to go to you and pray and share every single one of those emotions, whether it's anger, whether it's insecurity, whatever it is, that they would bring all of those things to you and ask you to answer no doubts. Lord, remind us that you will always do it again. You will always show us your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.